again back in the jaws obsession where we are here to share with you prove to you convince you or remind you that jaws is the greatest movie of all time thank you very much for returning back for this episode 61 ben gardner death explained what if i were to tell you there are clues in the movie jaws that will deliver us a conclusion into the great question of what happened to ben gardner now, who is Ben Gardner? Ben Gardner is this guy in Jaws. Hello. Hello, Beck. Young fella, how are you? Say, I hope you're not going out with those nuts, are you? That's right. Ben Gardner is the tall fisherman that welcomes Matt Hooper to the island when we have the introduction of Richard Dreyfuss's character, Matt Hooper, in the movie Jaws. Ben Gardner is that tall fisherman that helps him up onto the dock. And then later... In the famous scene that has led to many a jump scare in the theaters and living rooms around the world for almost the past 50 years, since 1975, the head comes out and scares Matt Hooper, as well as all the viewers, and that is the head of Ben Gardner. And everyone has always wondered, and I have received many inquiries from you, the listener, into exactly what happened to Ben Gardner. And in this episode, episode 61, we are going to get to that. I can guarantee you this, that after listening to this episode of The Jaws Obsession, your viewing of Jaws will once again be changed forever. You will have a greater understanding of what is happening in the movie, 
but also you will have a greater understanding of the events that we might not see on screen by using clues in the movie. And this episode is just going to be one of those classic episodes, and I'm excited to get to it. But first, we do have a special announcement uh, via Jaws Obsession UK over at Twitter. If everyone goes to Jaws Obsession UK over at Twitter, it's run by a nice gentleman named Hayden Wheeler. Hayden has been our um, UK connection for the United Kingdom, where he has been promoting the uh, Jaws Obsession and the Book of Quint. What Hayden has organized, there is a Jaws Obsession UK meetup planned for July 1st at the Robert Shaw West Houghton. Readers of the Book of Quint, listeners of the Jaws Obsession podcast, and everyone else are invited for a meetup at the Robert Shaw Weatherspoon Pub in West Houghton. A raffle will take place for a chance to win a signed copy of the Book of Quint from 11 a.m. with the raffle being drawn at 1 p.m. It's called the Robert Shaw 3440 Market Street, West Houghton, Bolton, right there in England. How cool is that? At the actual pub that Robert Shaw used to frequent. And what I have done is I have sent over two books of Quint. That's two of the original 300. We only have a few left that are reserved for promotional purposes. And I have sent over two books signed, which will be raffled off. Uh, There's going to be a chance to win one of the two, both of these copies of the Book of Quint at this meetup. This is going to be a meeting from 11 a.m. with the raffle being drawn at 1 p.m. For details over there, anybody that's over there that's interested in going down just to meet other listeners of the Jaws Obsession talk about Jaws, but also the Book of Quint readers. And if you don't have a copy of the Book of Quint, this is your chance to go win one. And the raffle will be raising money for shark research and conservation via a UK charity. Very excited to see how the Book of Quint can actually get into readers' hands. Even though we do not have a publication date set as of yet, we still have ways of helping the sharks out utilizing the Book of Quint. And Hayden is right on top of it. So if you go over to Twitter, at Jaws Obsession UK, You can get all the details there. I'll also have the details over at our Instagram, at Book of Quint, as well as JawsOB.com over on the notes page. So thank you very much, Hayden. Very exciting. We'll talk about more of that in the near future. So let's go back to this episode. This episode has been a long time in the making. I have received multiple emails here in the Jaws Obsession regarding Ben Gardner and Ben Gardner's head. And uh, one of the earliest ones was well, way far back. John, uh, John wrote in back in August of 2022. John wrote in, he said, uh, what is your theory on how Ben Gardner dies? If he was killed by the shark in Jaws, how did he end up back in the boat? I always wondered if it was scavenger fish that contributed to the condition of Ben's body. I look forward to you presenting the evidence to back up your theory and settle this debate. Keep up the good work. Cheers, John. Um, last week, Stefan wrote in and said that when Ben and Hooper, when Brody and Hooper explained to Mayor Vaughn on finding Ben Gardner's boat along with the tooth of a great white, Hooper then says he didn't have the tooth because he had an accident. Failing to mention the decapitated head of Ben Gardner popped out of a hole the size of a bowling ball allegedly made by the shark, which we later see is absolutely impossible. My guess is that Steven Spielberg took liberties for jump scares and being accurate uh, wasn't his top priority. That said, 
Was there any look into the death of Ben Gardner? All this really irked me, but most of all, Hooper leaving out all of this highly pertinent information goes against any logic and is a glaring mistake in the film. And that was Stefan wrote that in. This is these are just two. These are just a few of the emails we've had. Uh, many many talks about Ben Gardner's head, and we're going to clear all that up here on this episode of the Jaws Obsession. We have two expert opinions coming on the show that are going to join me with analyzing exactly what's going on with the crime scene when Brody and Hooper discover the wrecked hull of Ben Gardner's boat. Jaws is filled with many of these moments where it might. It might appear as a mistake or an exaggeration or an inconsistency, but it is not. And there are ways to explain this. One of the purposes into writing the book of Quint was to bring in elements to explain certain details when you watch Jaws that now carry a new meaning and make better sense. So what might be a plot hole or an inconsistency is actually filled in and actually shows that Okay, that's exactly how it happened. So there's elements in the book of Quint that actually help to determine what exactly happened to Ben Gardner. The map of Amity Island, as well as chapter 29 in the book of Quint. So any of you readers out there, uh, people that might have the book of Quint already, all the backers from the Indiegogo campaign, if you go to the map of Amity Island, I'll be referencing that later on. But if you don't have the book, you'll still be able to follow along because all of these details we're going to be taking from the movie Jaws. So even if you have a Blu-ray or a DVD of Jaws at this time, you can actually go right to the scene and follow along as well. Before I get into it, we're also going to be referencing a lot of show notes. There will be many, many photos. Some of these photos will be included on our Instagram page, at Book of Quint, over at Instagram. On the posting for this episode with the title card, You'll be able to flip through some of the photo evidence that I'll be referencing. But for the full stack of photos, you can go over to our show notes at our Telegram channel at JawsOB over at Telegram.com. All these links I just referenced can be found in the description of this broadcast on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. Let's get into it. Let's find out exactly how did Ben Gardner die. Hello. Hello, Beck. Young fella, how are you? Hey, I hope you're not going out with those nuts, are you? So Ben Gardner was played by a local fisherman, a larger-than-life fisherman named Craig Kingsbury. Craig Kingsbury was a local resident of Martha's Vineyard. When they were doing casting calls, he just walked into the office, and Sherry Rhodes said, this guy is amazing because not only was he larger than life, but he had all the sayings and all the fishermen speak that they were looking for. Steven Spielberg had Craig Kingsbury go hang out with Carl Gottlieb. Carl Gottlieb used a lot of lines that Craig Kingsbury brought and actually wrote that into the script. They also had Craig Kingsbury go and hang out with Robert Shaw. One, one of these days, we'll, we'll have to do a Craig Kingsbury episode because there is so much information into this individual who not only played Ben Gardner in Jaws, but also inspired Robert Shaw's portrayal of Quint in the first section of the movie, Jaws, there's a lot of Craig Kingsbury-isms that Robert Shaw adopted for his portrayal of Quint. We'll have to get to that in a future episode. But right now, let's focus on the character Ben Gardner. Ben Gardner, he is actually referenced in the novel Jaws by Peter Benchley. He is a local fisherman, and he is going out there to go hunt the shark and try to collect this $3,000 bounty 
that Mrs. Kittner put on for the death of her son Alex to go and kill this shark that's out there. So we see that during this armada scene where all these fishermen and all these fly-by-night fishermen are piling into boats, but Ben Gardner is more experienced. He's an experienced fisherman, as it says in the novel Jaws and, and as it's portrayed in the, in the movie here, is that this guy, he says, you're not going to go out with those nuts, are you? As in this guy knows about fishing. He knows his way around the water. And the people that are going out are just nuts, according to him. So automatically, Ben Gardner is a seasoned fisherman on Amity Island. He was a taller individual, well over six foot, probably six foot three, six foot four, as you can see with the height comparison compared to uh, Matt Hooper when they're standing next to each other on the dock. His boat is named the Flicka, F-L-I-C-K-A, Flicka. That was also from Peter Benchley's novel, Jaws. The next scene we get of Ben Gardner alive is when he is leading the pack out, in, out to the ocean from Amity Harbor. So he's with uh, the Flicka. He has his first mate on board with him. He's wearing the red hunting cap with a camo jacket, camouflage jacket. This is the second time we actually see him alive in the movie Jaws. When will we get them silly bastards down in that rock pile? They'll be some fun. They'll wish their fathers had never met their mothers when they start taking their bottoms out and slamming into them rocks, boy. Get away from there, you goddamn fool, you! What's the matter with you? What a swampers, you crazy son of a bitch! We hear Ben Gardner. He's complaining about these fishermen as he's headed out. Uh, he's yelling at them because they're crowding. So what we actually see here is Ben goes one way while these other while the other while the crazy fishermen with the rifles and the dynamite and all that they go the other way. So he's going to go off and he cuz he has his own idea where he's going to go and find the shark. He separates from the herd. You kind of infer that he's going to do that just because he's complaining about these guys getting close to him. And he's like, he says, you're going to swamp us. So as we go through the movie, we actually come upon, we have Hooper uh, goes to Brody's house for dinner. Then they say they're going to dissect the shark. There is no evidence of Alex Kittner in the stomach of the shark. So now they're going to go out and they're going to see if uh, they can find uh, that Hooper says something that's very interesting here. What does Hooper say as they're going out to uh, get in his boat? If he is a rogue and there's any truth to territoriality at all, we've got a good chance of spotting him between Cape Scott and South Beach. Where are you going? We've got to find him right now. He's a night feeder. On the water? Well, if we're looking for a shark, we're not going to find him on the land. So he says we have a good chance of finding him between Cape Scott and South Beach. If you look at the map of Amity Island that's featured in the Book of Quint, if you look at where Cape Scott is, and then you look at South Beach, and it says Hooper also references, a little bit later he references... Where are we? We're right in the stretch where he's been feeding. We're right in the stretch where he's been feeding. That's where Hooper is actually using the same logic that Ben Gardner obviously used because they're going to come upon Ben Gardner's boat. If you look at the map of Amity Island, there's South Beach. You draw a line from South Beach, then over to the uh, beach where Alex Kittner gets killed. That's next to the estuary. And then draw a line from that over to Cape Scott. So between where Alex Kittner is killed and Cape Scott... 
that's the area right in that body of water there. And that's where Hooper and Brody are right now. And that's where they're going to find Ben Gardner's boat. Well, it's a, it's a fish finder. It's probably just a school of mackerel. So at about 46 minutes and 54 seconds, right at the 47 minute mark of the movie, we are at this point. There's something else out there. At 100 yards south-southwest. So Hooper on his equipment gets a reading, uh, gets a reading that there's something else out there. And then they start coming up on some debris. Now, right here at this frame, 47 minutes and 24 seconds, what we're going to see, and this is going to come up later on, but everybody keep in mind this frame. Right here. We have a wooden barrel that's in the water, a wooden wine barrel. You can see the staves, the oak staves that's floating in the water. It's got, it actually is broken because the top is broken off and who knows what the bottom section looks like, but the, the boat is, uh, but Hooper is piloting his boat past a wooden barrel. Keep in note that wooden barrel. That is probably one of the more important clues to discovering exactly what Ben Gardner was doing out there and what happened to him. So now we're here at the scene of the crime. That's Ben Gardner's gnome. It's all banged up. Sure, I know him. He's a fisherman. And here we have the two main characters have discovered the Flicka half submerged in water, destroyed, completely destroyed. Look, Morton, I've got to go down there and check their hull. Wait a minute. Why don't we just tow it all in? We will, we will. I just got to check something out. We're now at the scene of the crime. We're going to treat this as a scene of the crime. And what we have to do now is we have to figure out exactly the dimensions, the size. We have to figure out what kind of craft is the Flicka. What was Ben Gardner using to go hunt for the shark. In order to get to the bottom of this, we have to bring back John Tedder, our orca specialist, who is also a shipbuilder. He's rebuilding the orca, so he knows a lot about not only boat construction, but wooden boat construction. John, thank you very much for showing up on this very special episode, episode 61. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Always great to hear your voice and be back here. When you're on the show, it, we know that things are, revelations are going to happen. So uh, another great appearance. I have, a, I'm anticipating another great appearance here. Thank you very much for coming on board. Let's just fire right into this. So the setting of the scene is what we're looking at is the death of Ben Gardner. Chief Brody and Matt Hooper uh, come upon Ben Gardner's the wrecked boat that's uh, floating in the water. Let's start right in with the, some technical details. What is the make? and model of the Flicka? The Flicka, well, it wouldn't really have a make. It's a type of boat that's called a runabout, and it's just a small boat, usually between anywhere of 15 feet to 20 feet. Uh, think kind of like a crisscraft, but this type of runabout would be uh, made specifically for fishermen that are in the Maine, Chesapeake Bay area, Massachusetts, Long Island, those types of things. And it's not a very big boat either. She's very narrow because she's, she's really just made for picking up uh, a few lobster traps here and there and just uh, running about in general. If somebody wanted to you know, take her down to the coast for the weekend, you know, just right. that type of thing. You sent some plans over that we're going to have on our show notes about the Kingfisher. Is the mm -hmm. is that what we're looking at? Is that that these plans right here? So a kingfisher was that a company or was that a just a style of craft? That's just the name of the style of craft, and uh, able to help 
differentiate the different types of runabouts that there are mm-hmm. because you might have the the your standard crisscraft type and then if you want to see another type of runabout that's more of a luxurious style if anybody's ever watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when he's on the boat being chased by the people that protect the grail the boat that he's on that's a, another type of runabout that's really uh, more of your rich man's runabout oh, more fa- luxurious fancier version yeah. Yeah. And the Kingfisher is just a, exactly what it is. It's just a smaller one that's uh, made for just your average Joe. Are the, and so they're they're generally they're generally so that's a good example. The one from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So we're seeing that these are these were uh, wooden hull vessels that were used almost like a utility vessel, just so the fishermen can just uh, kind of zip across the bay and back. That 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 kind of yes. just right. And so it's light work. Not really made for heavy trawling, heavy, heavy kind no. of right. Not made for heavy kind of work. That's that's a that's a very key fact that everyone has to uh, zero in on here. Is that it's just a light watercraft. It's kind of made for personal use, very light duty. What is the length and width of this vessel? So, like I said, they can vary anywhere from fifteen feet to twenty feet. Okay, uh, just going off of the plans here that I was able to find of what the flicker would have been. It's also interesting to note it is also the same type of boat that was used in Jaws 2 for the water skier. Aha. Just a different uh, hull planking top. The overall length of the flicker, and this is by estimation by using how tall Craig Kingsbury was and then looking at items on board the flicker and using that as a reference of scale and then doing some math her overall length would have been 18 feet and 8 inches. Her max width, with the, her beam width, would have been 6 foot 8 inches. And across the transom at the stern would have been 5 foot 3 inches. Wow. Okay. All right. That's that's very important. So 18 feet length and uh, yes. the, the stern, the width at the stern, 5 feet, you said? 5 feet 3 inches, yes. 5 feet 3 inches. Okay. That's very important here. Because this is going to lead to what we're going to prove here, what John's appearance is going to prove here. Um, we're going to draw some some conclusions here. So everybody keep that in length. Light watercraft made for light duty with only a five-foot uh, transom with five-foot three inches of width right there. And 18, and 18 feet. So if the shark is, how big is Bruce? Does Quint say Bruce is 25 feet? 25 feet, three tons. Right, so 25 feet, so automatically the shark is larger than the Flicka, okay? So you're already outgunned here. Um, So Ben Gardner and his first mate are already outmanned, outgunned, because of just the the craft, the working platform that they're using here. If we could please, John, if you could describe the propulsion system where the uh, the engine was, it was obviously there was an inboard engine? Yes. Okay. So... The Flicker would have had a 25 or 30 horsepower motor, nothing that's very get up and go. It's just enough to, like you said, just zip across the bay and come back. Mm-hmm. Um, she did not have a steering wheel. She did not have a steering wheel. And you can tell she didn't have a steering wheel because Ben Gardner's uh, first mate, he is at the stern steering the flicker with the tiller arm and uh, i provided some pictures of the back of the flicker and you can see that there is a the tiller arm comes down and going down the transom into the water to the rudder is a metal pole 
looking mm-hmm. top thing that the tiller would connect into so you can steer it. Yeah, so a lot of people Again. make that misconception that when Ben Gardner's complaining, he's facing the camera when he's uh, when he's headed out to sea with the other boaters. The first mate is in the back. He's actually steering the vessel, and Ben Gardner is just pretty much doing the throttles. Is that what he's doing? He's just... Yes. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there so would be a throttle, right? There's a throttle at the helm. That's all he's doing. Interesting way to set up a vessel like that. If you could describe why, why would you have that type of steering system? It could be one of several reasons, but first we got to narrow dent down on something. The flicker would have been something local built, perhaps built by Ben Gardner himself. Okay. And if he was doing his fishing by himself originally, he would have absolutely had a wheel, but no fisherman worth their salt, nobody that builds a boat that is worth their salt solely relies on a steering wheel because if your cable or chain snaps, mm-hmm. how are you going to steer? You have to have a way to do that. So you implement what is called a tiller arm that connects to a pole that goes down into the stuffing box in order to turn the rudder. And in the Flicka's case, uh, Ben has either A, jerry-rigged something that goes down into the water off the transom and acts as another rudder, Okay. whereas he has one up under the boat. Or he did build the boat this way or bought it this way, and there was no rudder that was ever attached with a steering wheel. Something had to have happened to the steering for been to be using the tiller arm. He just didn't have time to fix it. Well, that's that's what I think is that it seems like this is how he always goes out to sea. I right. don't, I don't, th- I think he would have borrowed someone else's vessel. I think there would have been something. I think this is just how it's always been because, um, right. because it, we, uh, in the book of Quint, it describes Amity Island as an isolated island. It takes a lot of, to get material out there. It's a long time. It's a long wait. And some of these guys don't have the cash. So it's obviously that he's just like, you know what, this is what I deal with and this is how I'm going to do it. That's a big revelation. A lot of people don't understand that his first mate is standing back there steering the vessel. So what you're now dealing with is that it's not that maneuverable when when dealing with hunting a, not only a shark, but a great white shark the size of the Bruce shark from Jaws. If the guy's in the back is steering, but he can't see what's going on off the bow, it's total chaos. So you're already going into a chaotic situation with this type of steering system. Uh, one other thing that I wanted you to point out is where is the actual engine on the Flicka? The engine on the Flicka is almost dead center of the vessel, and you can actually see it. I've provided um, overhead yep. screenshots that I have lightened up, and you can see it. And the best way to actually see the engine, where the engine would be, because there's an engine box on top of it, if you look in the center, you can see the, there's a square there in the center with what I believe is a gas can sitting on top of it. Yep, there it is. That's going to be in our show notes for this episode. You can just f- flip through the slides and you'll see John's slide that he lightened up. You're looking down into the Flicka from Jaws. So this is Canon to Jaws. You actually see the box that the engine is in. So it's an engine box. It's not something that you see on the Orca where you pull up the decking and you go down into an engine compartment. This engine is actually taking up space 
and you see it from an overhead view. He's also, John also provided the cross section of the Kingfisher uh, that you can actually see the outline of, of, a, of an engine uh, through the hull. So it's a cross section of the hull and you can actually see that's going to be on our show notes as well. What this is showing is that working area of the Flicka is very congested. It's not a, yes. it's not an open space that you might think if you're just looking at from Jaws, from what when you really get a good good look at the Flicka, you're when and from Ben Gardner's uh, when he's facing the camera, it doesn't. It looks like it's more of just an open space on this boat. It's not. It, there's actually a lot of congestion there. One other question I wanted to get to. It's still floating. We know there's a hole in the in the hull in this underneath, and the, yet the Flicka is still floating. Is that because of uh, the buoyancy, not uh, the wood, as well as you believe that this attack happened not too long before Brody and Hooper discover it? Because why? Because she is still afloat now. If she had been, if this had happened earlier, then she would be completely underwater, which she nearly is completely underwater. Mm-hmm. However, she still has enough buoyancy and air to float. And for anybody that you know, wants to question that, you can go on YouTube and you can look up several boat sinking videos where they stay afloat for 30 minutes to, you know, a couple of hours. And it's because the buoyancy is not completely gone, And but she's still afloat, even though she does have a rather large-sized hole in her hull that has taken on water. She's still afloat because you have buoyancy still there and you have air pockets. Yeah, you They're do. Still there. You do have air pockets in the front and towards the front in the bow, right? And uh, forward forward compartments are filled with air. In the orca, why the orca is going down so fast is that it took the whole transom off, and those air pockets front are being flooded right away. There's no way. There's no way for those air pockets to trap and actually hold the orca up. So that's why the orca is going down. You've also noticed there's a frame here that's going to be in our show notes. You note that 3.5 feet below the waterline is where the majority of the shark damage to the hull is. That there's bubbling happening. Yes. As from behind Hooper, the, that angle from behind Hooper, as the spotlight pans across uh, onto the Flicka, there's actual bubbling happening right where the hull is punctured. Yes. So that indicates that air is currently escaping, right, from these air pockets, and that's what's holding the, the, the Flicka up. Yes. Okay. There's also one other precious frame that John sent over where he took a cross section. Everybody's going to go look at that on the show notes. He took a cross section of the Flicka from he uh, from the frame behind Hooper's shoulder, behind Hooper's back, and he actually placed a body of Ben Gardner where and the head where the hole would be. That's approximation. But it's giving you an idea of exactly what is going on inside that hull. I wanted to talk about the two types of hull construction that the Flicka is. What were those two types? The two types that you have, we're going to go with the one that the Flicka has, is carval type, which is where the hull planking is flush against each other, like like what the Orca was, what you typically see on a wood boat. And then the other style is clinker construction, and that's where you have overlapping Hole yep. planking. Where they overlap, right. And I've seen some of those videos FMC built has on his Instagram. He's rebuilding a vessel and yes. you can see the overlapping framing, right? Yes. Okay. Two questions about that. The overlapping framing and then the side, like, well, let's just say seam framing or side by side where it meets up, where it's flush. 
Okay. Would the overlapping have been any stronger at resisting the uh, a shark, the the pounding, or would that would that have been punctured as easily as the side by side framing? With the orca, when we see when we see the puncturing happening, we see the seams opening up. Is it is a, is the hull a little stronger, like resisting, like let's say running aground if a rock scrapes against it if it's the overlapping if it's the overlapping framing you can't really say that when it comes to the whole construction on the type of planking that it has mm-hmm. which one is stronger because it's completely two different separate types what you need to look at and what your question really applies to is the ribbing of what hold does get that gives the boat its shape the ribbing the ribbing okay. so the ribbing on the flicker would have been significantly thinner than what it is on the orca Mm-hmm. And also the type of wood that would have been used. Now, uh, oak was probably used for the flicka. Could have also been mm-hmm. uh, mahogany. Um, could have also been a softer wood. Uh, there's really no way to tell what it was. However, we do factually know that the orca was made out of white oak and white oak frames, which made her really strong. And that's why the that's why the shark could not puncture through as easily as what it did with the flicka. Now. With the the thicker the the ribbing is, the obviously the stronger it is. The flicka, which is a design flaw. Of course, nobody thought you know anybody'd be going out right. hunting for twenty five <laughs> foot great watts. Um, so the ribbing is much thinner. It's not as thick. So th- uh-huh. that was the ultimate design flaw. It is what was able to cause the flicker to be punctured like it was, and the orca was not. And also the ribbing on the flicka, and, and th- this, what I'm about to say, th- this is a guess. This is not mm-hmm. absolutely factual because you can't see the inside of the flicka to where the ribbing is. However, I'm basing this off of what it was in Jaws 2 because it's the same type of boat, and okay. the Jaws 2 boat used the uh, clinker style, the overlapping style. Okay. The ribbing was spaced decently apart. And when Hooper goes down to examine the hull, you can actually see one of the ribs right there. And there is over a foot of space that is right there. So I would guess that on the flicker, there was a foot to two foot of space between each each ribbing, if not a little more. And that's completely fine. However, with the thickness of the ribbing, it was what caused the ultimate demise of the boat to start taking on water and flood. Right. Whereas on the Orca, it's much further apart, but you also have thicker ribbing. You also have thicker hull planking, and that's another thing. With the Flicka, she would have had thinner hull planking. Her hull planking wouldn't have been an inch thick. At best, it would have been half an inch thick. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't have been it, it'd have been a weaker boat so in, when in when you say when you say ribbing you're talking about like uh, the like almost like the ribs on uh, on our ribs right like they, they go yes. they go uh width of the you know the width of the vessel right that type of ribbing? Yes. yes. So the yes. spacers, the space is a good generous width apart, and it's not as thick wood being used for that. So that's what the flaw that led to the demise of the flicka. I mean, granted, of course, the shark is much stronger and out, outweighed it, but the the reason why it, the shark could not puncture the orca was, number one is the white oak the orca is made out of, stronger wood. Yes. And you're saying thicker ribbing, like more, uh, like sturdier, like beefier ribbing on the orca because it's obviously a bigger vessel? 
Yes. There you go. All right. So it can it can take that pounding and that abuse more before the wood uh, before it finds the weak spot in the wood. Correct. All right. Well, look at that. So we've just technically put all these pieces together. And what I wanted to say was that why I brought you on for this segment here was I wanted to prove two things. I wanted to show that the uh, the design flaw of the Flicka, why the shark won over the Flicka, you just proved that. However, what I one of the things that I think you're proving here, that your appearance has proved here, is the working area is very limited on the Flicka. And when you have a congested environment that's not there's not enough space to work, then problems can happen. Is that correct? Yeah, because there's not a whole lot of room. I mean, you, you have enough room for two people to stand side by side and have a little bit of room up between each other, but not a whole lot. So as far as terms of a working area, uh, you're, you don't have a whole lot. I mean, it's not like the Oracle where you have a lot of working area where you have a fighting chair and you can put, you know, a shark cage on the side and mm-hmm. two tanks and yeah, everything you have, else. You have 10 feet, at, right, to play with on the Orca. You, you can, you know, you can run around and you can do different things. You can move around freely and react. Right. If problems happen, you can move around and react. In the Flicka, if a problem happens on the other side, you have to move. You have to climb over the engine box. You have to move around. You're, you're the other. You might be bumping into the other guy who's trying to hold a rope and he can't move. It just has the potential just to go haywire because this, as you've proven, this was not designed as a working vessel. This was designed as almost just a a light duty vessel. And Ben Gardner was taking it out because he kind of thought that that he could get the job done, that this was going to be a no-brainer. Right. John, I want to thank you very much for appearing on Episode 61. I want to thank you very much, John, for bringing this info to us here on the Jaws Obsession. Anytime. I love coming on. All right, John. We'll talk to you later. See you, buddy. So that's a special thanks to John Tedder for coming on board and lending his expertise there. If you want to go to John's Etsy shop, Quince Shark and Shack, over at Etsy.com, John has some wonderful Jaws item jaws related items there as well as if you want to follow his project of his orca rebuild you go to orcarebuild.com or over at youtube at orca rebuild you can find those links in the description below as well in the wake of that amazing appearance by john if you go to fmcbuilt.com noel constantino over there uh, lives in boston and he is actually working on a vessel the same size as the Flicka. No, like me with this episode, never really realized that that's what the first mate is doing. He's steering the Flicka. Uh, He's got his hand on the tiller for steering. He says, what never occurred to me until today was that the first mate was actually manning the helm because the Flicka had a tiller steering station at the transom. This is indicative of what is commonly called a New England bass boat and actually shares a lineage with my boat as there is the same kind of tiller at the back end of my Sakonet 2.6. This was a popular design for sport fishermen in the 40s and 50s, then eventually morphed into more of a pleasure craft as the years went on. So Noel also sends some information agreeing with John that what Ben Gardner was using was somewhat of a pleasure craft, and it was sort of a, an older style vessel, certainly not suited to handle a 25-foot great white shark. But what's interesting, if you look on some of the videos of Noel's rebuild on that Sakonet 26 vessel, you can see the overlapping framing of the hull 
and that is the opposite of what the side-by-side uh, -side framing that is the Flicka. So if you go to his Instagram account over at instagram.com slash fmcbuilt, you can actually see videos of him working on that type of hull, and you can see the, the different construction standards. So very great to see all this input coming in, real-time information coming in from people that are working on wooden hulled vessels. Great to see. Now let's move on with this scenario. Let's move on. We have Hooper and Brody are now at the Flicka. We have all the details about what the Flicka, what happened there. So let's look at the scene of the crime. What details are revealed in this sequence? The lights for me. So the light pans across the Flicka. We see shattered windshields. And we come across this chunk that's taken out. I'm going to pause it right there. We come across this chunk that's taken out of the gunnel uh, on the lower, on the aft port side, right next to the transom, this lower, this, this uh, crescent-shaped chunk taken out. Now, in my younger days, one might assume that that was, a, the, that was the crescent shape of a shark's mouth. That was a bite that the shark took. But that is not, not, that's not the case here because that's not naturally, if the shark was going to take a bite, it would not take a bite of just that. There'd be damage to the lower portion of the gunnel as well as the side of the hull. No, that was done by something else. Something else ripped that off. Another theory was that this was a similar, um, uh, this, this was a similar break to Jaws 2 when Eddie gets taken in Jaws 2 and he's holding on to the side of Tina's Joy, the sailboat, his sailboat there. He's holding on and uh, the shark pulls him under and he pulls a section right off the gunnel. It's a similar break. It's a, it's, it's actually has that crescent shape. So that was one of the theories. But then if you look really close, if you look really, really close, okay, so we have one photo from a top view has been enhanced and lightened up, and you're actually going to see a broken cleat there. I also have in our show notes, if you go to the collage, there's a, a three-slide collage photo that I made up. Pages 54 through 58 of Jaws Memories from Martha's Vineyard by Matt Taylor these behind-the-scenes photos that are featured in this, in daytime, it actually shows the filming of the Flicka when Ben Gardner is taking her out to sea at that moment. So we see the undamaged Flicka. What we see is there is a smaller cleat, a stern cleat, on the aft port section next to the gunnel of the Flicka. I have included photos on our show notes as well as over at Instagram you can actually see that that is now broken away. The original scene of the discovery of the Flicka was filmed in the daytime. And this was done with screenwriter Carl Gottlieb playing Meadows, the reporter, with Hooper and Brody in a boat where they discover this. This was later scrapped and decided to film at night in a back lot back in Hollywood after the wrapping of the Martha's Vineyard production of Jaws back in 1974. So what you have now is we have daytime photos of what the Flicka looked like after the destruction of the shark. And this is what it looks like, but it's filmed at night for what appears in the movie. But what we have is we actually have photo verification that that crescent-shaped break, it's right by the missing cleat where there is a cleat that's ripped off. 
So uh, I also enhanced the frame from Jaws where I actually took out the noise and lightened it up. And you can actually see the damage right there where this cleat was at one time. As for that crescent-shaped notch taken out of the gunnel, the side railing, the port aft port section of the Flicka, that crescent-shaped what looks like a bite mark is not a bite mark, as well as the missing cleat, uh, the, the damaged section of the, that, that's actually, that is referenced in both the novel Jaws and for the screenplay Jaws. Let's go to page 82 of the novel Jaws by Peter Benchley. The Flicka is actually found in the novel. The Flicka is actually found by Brody and Hendricks, Deputy Hendricks, and they uh, bring their vessel alongside the Flicka and Brody gets on board and it says Brody stood at the starboard gunnel gazing into the middle distance. The boat moved slightly, and he steadied himself with his right hand. He felt something strange and looked down. There were four ragged screw holes where a cleat had been. The screws had obviously not been removed by a screwdriver. The wood around the holes was torn. Look at this, Leonard. Hendricks ran his hand over the holes. He looked to the port side where a 10-inch steel cleat still sat securely on the wood. You imagine that what was here was as big as the one over there, he said. What would it take to pull that mother out? Look over here, Leonard. Brody ran his index finger over the outer edge of the gunnel. There was a scar about eight inches long where the paint had been scraped away and the wood abraded. It looks like some someone took a file to this wood or else rubbed the hell out of it with an awful tight piece of heavy rope. So that describes the notch taken out of the side with uh, what was described as an awful piece, uh, awful tight piece of heavy rope. So a piece of rope that was on that gunnel uh, what what that was attached to the cleat was very tight and wearing away that wood, sawing away at the wood. That was from page 82 of the novel Jaws by Peter Benchley. If we go to page 48 of the screenplay by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, in scene 116, it's a point of view, it says the light picks its way Across the ruined boat, the rail where a cleat once was is broadly scarred down to the raw timber, and the heady cleat has been torn bodily out of the hull, ripped out screws and all. So this all backs up what we are seeing here is that Ben Gardner, that there was a rope attached to that cleat, and it did go back over the, it went across the flicka to enough that it was damaging the wood rails. So it's not like it was uh, on the cleat and then out to the water. It's actually coming across the flicka where there would be a great probability that it would pin or trap someone to the hull. So a cleat was pulled off. That's, very, that's a key piece of evidence and that actually has to be taken into account. We also can look down into the flicka. We can see the small engine box cover with the gas can on top you can see how congested and narrow the Flicka is compared to the Orca. Now, what we have here is we have a great deal of what the Ben Gardner death scene, what this setting is, is one giant segment of foreshadowing. And it's foreshadowing what later happens and what we're going to see later on with the Orca. But what this is doing is that if we go in reverse, if we see what happens in the with the orca when they're fighting Bruce the shark later on in the movie Jaws, we can actually 
go backwards and tell what happened to Ben Gardner, taking the clues of what happens later on and then look at the destruction now, we're going to actually form this picture and we're going to put this puzzle together. There is a bow cleat, but you also see rope, black rope, a line of some sort that's strewn all over the vessel. You also see the antenna, the VHF radio antenna is bent completely backwards. There is also the fishing net with the flotation on it, all like it was gathered in really fast and it was pulled in really fast in order to get it out of the water. So the floater buoys and the fishing net can be seen anywhere. There's broken glass on the windshield. This 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 boat was put through the ringer. So remember, let's keep that in mind. Remember, let's keep that in mind. We had the uh, rope everywhere. We have a hole in the hull. We already were told by John Tedder, we were shown that this was a congested work area. They didn't have room to maneuver. The steering system, the steering system, it, had, it was a two-man operation. One guy uses the throttle, the other guy manually steers. So you can't maneuver this boat as well as the Orca shows, as the Orca can maneuver. And you have that wooden barrel floating in the water. Slowly but surely, we're bringing these clues together. Now let's continue on with the scene. Let's tow it in. Don't worry, Martin. Nothing's gonna happen. What am I supposed to do while you're gone? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Don't touch any of the equipment. I'll be back in two minutes. So Hooper enters the water, he swims over underneath the flicka, he goes aft a little bit, and then he spins around, and then he comes over along the keel. He swims back to the starboard side of the keel and comes forward up to this basketball-sized hole in the hull of the flicka. So now we get a look at the great white tooth in his hand and he's looking around and of course now comes the scene where all Jaws fans are in unison get spooked. So now we have the revelation of Ben Gardner's corpse. The head of Ben Gardner is seen in the hole in the hull. So for that, what we have to do is we have to look closely at these, at the, the quick shots that we do have of the corpse. We have to look at the details and the details tell a completely different story than we might initially think. Some people think it's a severed head. It is not. It is actually, you do see a neck and you see torso. So there is actually shoulders. And so what we're seeing is we're actually seeing a complete body there. It's just that the, uh, that we see the face, obviously we're missing an eye, but there is a whole torso there. So we're seeing the, so we have to assume that there is a full body that's laying there against the hull. 
of note is of note what you're going to what we're going to have to do if we look at the close-up images and some of these images are going there, we have all these images in our in our show notes over at our telegram channel at jaws ob and uh, one in particular is going to be the when we do see the first revelation of the head we do see that Ben Gardner's shirt collar is on backwards. That's not on backwards. What we're looking at is we're looking at the back of Ben Gardner and his left shoulder, and his neck is broken. So his neck is actually turned. It's turned past 90 degrees facing his back. So we have a mangled body. You have to look at that shirt. The collar is, we're actually looking at the back of the collar. So the collar is not, it's not that it's reversed, it's that his head is turned in an humanly possible way around. The neck is broken, and we're looking at the back. So what Ben Gardner's body is, is laying in the hull, uh, chest up. So the back is to the hole, and that's where his head is turned around. So this body was mangled. Uh, it, it would take the weight and the force of something very large in order to mangle a body like this. So that's what everyone has to do is pause that section where the head comes out of Ben Gardner and look at his shirt collar. It is clearly, we are looking at the back of the collar. But let's not take my word for it. What we need now is we need an experienced set of eyes that has seen his share of crime scenes. And that's why I'm going to welcome back to the show a retired detective from the Syracuse, New York Police Department, Detective Muggsy McGraw. I was able to have a chat with retired Detective McGraw regarding this crime scene and how exactly would he approach it and also what, are, what was his first instincts when seeing the body of Ben Gardner, the physical details of this corpse. Are there any clues into how Mr. Gardner perished? So let's get to that interview. Muggsy, I needed your expertise here. You saw the photos right there that I just sent you. Yes. Uh, so in the movie, they're coming on, right. on this scene. When you were a detective with your experience, as you approached a scene with a, a dead body or a murder scene, what was the your first priority in determining what happened? What would be your first thing to look at? Well, my first w would be to see if he's alive. I mean, sometimes... Uh, it's amazing what the human body can endure. He, you know, check for a, uh, some type of a pulse. Okay. But it, sometimes uh, you, you got to at least try that. Right. And then preserve the scene and then take pictures. And, and so at this point in the movie, uh, Matt Hooper, which is the scientist, he actually goes underneath to inspect the hull. And he right. and that's when um, that's when the body is revealed. So that the, the, the upper torso, the head emerges... It appears inside the hole in the hall. And now I remember it, yeah. Yeah. So and it kind of scares everybody in the movie. And so there's multiple scenarios were drawn up. Some people swore that it was just a severed head, but you can see there's a shoulders and there's a torso there. So what we right. did what what we did was we did all this composite on those photos that you saw my uh, technical advisor, John Tedder. We, we looked at the scenario and we said, okay, one of the clues there is there's this, there's the eye bulge on the, on the corpse. And I remember you saying, or you experienced a uh, scene where someone died from a compression death and right. there was a similar right. eye. Uh, and could you describe that a little bit? Same thing, the bulgy, the bulgy and the, the yeah. 
So, so, so that is similar to what you saw. What, what happened to this individual? Was it a very heavy vehicle? It was one of those uh, construction rollers for the road, you know, the tire. Yes. The McAdam. Yes. And he got too close to the bank and it tipped over. Mm-hmm. He jumped off the roller, but he didn't jump far enough. And the roller tipped on him. Tipped on him. And that's uh, uh, tragic. And then. Yeah. And his, it, it, his head was still showing, but he, he couldn't get him out from underneath it, you know. And, and, and this. So actually, he just died of uh, asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. And there, <clears throat> and there was a similar eye bulge there not to get too yeah. graphic yeah it was so so what leads you okay i uh, seeing that so you're you're sort of in the same you're heading down the same direction that i am that there was some sort of with ben gardner which is the name of the character in jaws that passed away there aren't any bite marks that they talk about later on when they're approaching the mayor with the news of this death of ben gardner we have right. to then look at just the images that were shown you're kind of in that camp that he died of some sort of compression death asphyxiation Brian it appears he's been strangled was they find ropes that were la- uh, lashed around him there's there's ropes lashed around it all over the boat it's strewn all over the boat there's a slacked off ropes but we we can't see that it's not shown in the movie but that's the theory that I'm leaning at is the ropes played a factor in that this shark weighed three tons. So right. if and if if someone were to get tangled in that and then there would have been pinned against the hull, is that is, is so that could that's very possibility with your with your uh, history and yeah. your expertise that's a very big possibility of the uh, asphyxiation. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. Then there you go. That's that's what we needed. We needed that this integral. You played such an integral part of the uh, last episode when you were on, when we were trying to figure out what the chief was doing with those uh, medical examiner reports. Correct. And so now you're coming. That's the best part is that you're what, what we need you here is that this is proving uh, to a bigger point that this this individual was uh, the, uh, his cause of death. I can't thank you enough for that. The one other question I had is, as a medical examiner, when they do the report. Are different scenarios drawn up and then eliminated before yes, the report is. is finalized? Well, they do a, a I mean, the, if there's rope burns, I mean, I, I don't know that much about it, but uh, I mean, I've never attended an autopsy, but, mm-hmm. but you got, I mean, you look for rope burns or anything that. Uh, right. So you would look for something know, that well, would lead you to a theory, like you would have a multiple right. theories. And sometimes if there was two detectives on the scene, would so would someone, was there ever a disagreement where you might've seen something and the other guy might've said, no, I think it was this. And then you wait for the medical examiner. Well, no, you just talk about it. You collect evidence. Yep. Take pictures and uh, they showed about, they didn't show any autopsy or any medical reports, right? No, not, not with this one. It was the, the movie's kind of moving along at a steady pace. So they go right from here. Then they go right to them trying to explain it to the mayor. The, the quote is he, uh, the boat was all chewed up. It was Ben Gardner's boat. You should have seen him. So they're not saying that he was chewed up. The boat was chewed up, but he was mangled in a way. And you could see, yeah. and you sort of agree too, because the collar's on backwards, that his neck is also kind of unnaturally broken right. there. Is that what you see as well? Yeah, yes. That's what I summarize also. Well, there you go. All right. <laughs> Muggsy, thank you so much. 
<laughs> All right, how, Ryan. How have you been, by the way? How's your health? Good. Very good. I was just out doing a little mulch today, going back out here in a little bit. Oh, man. That's it. What a, what a day for it. What a day for it. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Muggsy. You're, you're helping me bring clues together. This is leading us to some uh, bigger bigger clues. The puzzle pieces are coming together. Oh, good luck. My prayers are with you, Ryan. Thank you, Muggsy. We'll talk to you later. Have a great weekend. Absolutely. You too. And how about that? How about that? How exciting it is to get an actual retired detective onto the Jaws obsession. We can't thank retired detective Muggsy McGraw enough. He helped us out back in episode 16. If we go to how this how this scene is described in the screenplay with the revelation of Ben Gardner, it's only described as in scene 119, we see a close-up of the hole. It says, Ben Gardner's dead face stares out through the hole in the flicka, eyes and mouth gaping in frozen horror, his skin pinched like a prune. Pinched like a prune. So what we have, and that's all it says. And then Hooper uh, bumps his head and trying to get away, seems to yell through escaping bubbles. That's all that's mentioned in the screenplay of Jaws. So, so it leaves it open for interpretation. It leaves it open for our visual interpretation of the clues given, the visual clues given in the movie Jaws to lead to this conclusion. So now we have an expert come on the show and actually give us this insight that it appears that Ben Gardner, through the physical, the eye bulge, as well as the mangled neck, there is something that shows to Detective Muggsy McGraw that Ben Gardner died of asphyxiation, a compression death, a severe compression death. That can now lead us right into the big reveal. The big reveal, the cause of death. What exactly happened out there? We're going to recap now. We're going to recap these four different columns, these four different clues that we have. And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through these four major clues and I'm going to play them with evidence of later on in the movie Jaws how they foreshadow what's about to happen. So number one is you have the wooden barrel in the water. Right at that 47-minute mark, you, we see the wooden barrel floating in the water. That Ben Gardner was attempting to hunt the shark with a barrel. He failed to realize that you can't just put any barrel on a shark, especially the one the size of the one in Jaws. And by him just attaching a wooden barrel is something that Quint already learned his lesson on. And what happens with wooden barrels is that they do not hold up well to the stress of shark hunting. As it is written in the Book of Quint, in chapter 29 of the Book of Quint. Um, there's no spoilers there, but Quint learns his lesson early on. So what Ben Gardner was doing was he was trying to do the same thing, only he did not go through the progression that Quint went through. What we're seeing later on is not from that wooden barrel floating next to the flicka. Later on in the movie Jaws. So as we saw there is that Hooper actually runs the barrel down with the orca and makes contact with the plastic keg 
that Quint uses and that Keg holds up to the abuse of the shark hunt, of the hunt, the abuse of the hunt. So what we're looking at here is that the wooden barrel that Ben Gardner was using did not hold up. The plastic keg that the the the, the five plastic kegs that Quint uses uh, were, are used. There is a reason to that because wooden barrels do not hold up to the uh, to the hunt of the shark. They do not hold up to the abuses that one will take when the when the when the barrels come in contact with the hull of a vessel. Big clue number one wooden barrel in the water. Now, here we go with the second one, the missing stern cleat, the rip that's ripped from the stern. As we showed in the photos, as they leave the harbor, there's a stern cleat there. Now it's missing. Later on, that comes into play here. So as we see there, during the hunt for the shark, one of the parts of Quint's technique is to take those barrels, tie them off to the cleat, to the stern cleat, and try to drown the shark that way. If the shark, if the barrels are not drowning the shark, then he can actually pull the shark backwards. But the this shark is massive, and it's actually pulling out. Make it fast! Make it So look at the abuse the shark does to the orca. Now imagine that Ben Gardner also tried this technique on the smaller cleats of the flicka. Oh, okay, and with a close-up of the cleats on the, the actual cleats, they're actually four, they're bolted down in four uh, by four bolts. So they're a lot heavier duty cleats on the orca, where the smaller cleats that are only held down by one bolt, a center bolt there, on the flicka. So um, that's why the failed cleat on the flicka, whereas the it takes a it takes a lot more uh, it takes a lot more abuse. The orca takes a lot more abuse because of the size of those cleats. Ben Gardner pretty much felt that he could do the same technique as Quint. Uh, where where he thought that this was just going to be an undersized shark, did not realize what he was getting into. Then we're going to go to the third clue. What actually happens when a line is under tension? Now, as you see, when you have multiple barrels or you're trying to wrangle a shark using the barrel technique, there's lines all over. And as you see, in the, at the uh, towards the end of Jaws, there's lines everywhere on the aft deck, uh, over across the transom, every which way. And what happens in all the confusion? This scene. Now then, time to the stern cleats. Rudy, figure right around the cleat. That's right, it'll lock itself off. Give him room, Rudy. That's right. That Brody, when you have lines going everywhere and there is a three tons of shark on the other end, you're going to have a lot of tension. And what happens? Hooper gets caught in the middle of that tension and gets squeezed pretty fiercely. And you can see the pain in Hooper's uh, eyes 
where he gets caught in between the hull and the tension of that line. And it takes Brody all the strength that he has, and same with Hooper, to free him and give him a space so he could pop out of that. But you actually see just the danger of the shark uh, the shark's effect on a line that's under tension. Uh, also, Quint also talks about when a shark runs, what actually happens. Okay. When he runs, you drop that rope or you'll lose your hands. I seen fingers turn out of the knuckles. Old Seaman's home's full of them. Hey, boy, give it to me a minute. So he says, when he runs, you drop that rope or you lose your hands. So he knows, Quint knows how fast events can go from good to bad when you're dealing with the strength of uh, a shark of this size on the other end of those lines. It would have been impossible for Ben Gardner to know this since Ben Gardner was just an experienced fisherman. He was not a shark hunter and he did not hunt sharks with barrels Usually, right? Because there, he did not have permanent barrels raked to his vessel. That is another clue. That is another clue that we saw a great length of rope strewn all over the flicka. And then now we see exactly what a danger of a rope under tension can do in squeezing Hooper. Is it possible that this can be translated over to what happened to Ben Gardner? Yes, it is. One more thing to note is that when we're looking at the shark in Jaws, the signature move of this shark, you have to look at each shark has signature moves. And uh, as in they behave in a certain way. So this shark behaves in a certain pattern. Quint puts one barrel into this great white. The great white takes the barrel under, and then it returns later on to the orca to do what? So as you see there, the shark returns to try to punch a hole in the boat, into the hull. This indicates that it worked for this shark before. So we have to assume that if one barrel is in the shark now, it angers the fish, the fish comes back, and it tries punching a hole into the hull of the boat. It was foreshadowed by the image in the book that Ellen Brody is holding earlier in the movie. But I want him to read the boating regulations, the rules, you know, before he goes out on his own. Michael, did you hear your father out of the water now? Now! It all ties together that this shark, what it's doing to the orca with one barrel in it, it also would have done the same thing to Ben Gardner's boat once he got a barrel in it, turns onto the boat and starts trying to ram a hole into it to attack this shape that's attacking it. And that's pretty much what we're looking at. That's a signature move by this shark. Another move by this shark is the roll, the barrel roll that this fish does. When caught above Hooper's cage in the lines, what is the reaction of this great white? Bring him up now! 
So we see that the shark is actually doing a barrel roll where it's actually rolling over multiple times, tangled in the wires, tangled in the ropes of the cage, and it's putting all of its three tons of weight onto the top of that cage. If it's caught, that's what the shark's instinct is to do. And its weight is so great, look what it does to the jib arm of the orca. So right there, that proves the massive weight of this shark can crush. It can break a solid arm, a jib arm that's been used on the orca for years. It, it has a crushing weight that's applied. Using these four clues, right? Now using these four clues, the wooden barrel in the water, the missing stern cleat of the flicka, uh, the what happens with a line under tension against uh, Hooper, against Hooper's legs, and then also the signature moves of attacking the hull with a barrel in it and the barrel roll, the, the twisting that the shark does when it's tangled or trapped. That leads us to the great conclusion of what exactly happened to Ben Gardner. If you take all those elements put in, if you take everything that we showed uh, that, that John Tedder came to tell us about, as well as Detective Muggsy McGraw says that Ben Gardner appears to be strangled, uh, died of asphyxiation with the eye bulge that happened over a crushing weight to Ben Gardner's body. What we have to look at is Ben Gardner was a third class, a third rate quint. Is that he was a great fisherman or maybe working the waters of Amity Island, but he did not have experience in hunting sharks, but he did know about quint. They probably have seen each other in the local pubs and bars of Amity Island. So what we're looking at is that Ben and his first mate, they take the flicker out to, to a fishing spot. Ben knew exactly how to read the shark. He's thought the same way that Hooper thought. He said, he's been feeding in this area. I'm going to go off of between Cape Scott and South Beach, and I'm going to go over here because I believe that this is where the shark will, will, will is kind of hanging out, and this is where the shark will return. Um, he set a net out, the fishing net with the flotation devices. Possibly, of course, he baited the water to bring the shark close. Now, if you look at what the what is his first mate doing when when Ben when Ben Gardner first greets Hooper. If you look at if you look at Ben Gardner's feet, if you look at what his first mate, what the first mate of uh, the Flicka is doing, he's actually loading poles. They're pole spears, and you can actually see in one of the images that we were um, in one of the images on the show notes. You can actually see a handheld harpoon that is laying in the across the transom in the aft deck in the in the working area the working deck of the flicka on that top image so what those are those are handheld harpoons what they were doing is they were going to go out and they were going to find the shark and they were going to use a handheld harpoon to put a barrel into the shark using a pole spear or the handheld harpoon that you see his first mate handling that he's about to load as they head out. If you look down uh, during this sequence, 
never met the mothers when they start taking their bottoms out and slamming into them rocks, boy. Ben Gardner is uh, on the throttle, so he's leaning against the windshield of the Flicka. The first mate is steering using that handheld uh, tiller arm for the rudder in the back. If you look really closely down at his feet, you'll see one of the handles of those of that held, handheld harpoon and then a, a mess, a spaghetti mess of rope. This shows that the rope is not, it's not organized. It is actually just thrown into the aft deck. So there is a, there's a, there's a, there's a problem that's brewing here inside this little smaller, this smaller vessel. What ends up happening is Ben Gardner and his first mate actually get a wooden barrel that onto the, onto the shark. Of course, the wooden barrel is going to fail and shatter under pressure. The last ditch effort as this wooden barrel fails is to get that line, the barrel line and rig it to what? To the stern cleat, try to drag the shark in. What they do not realize is there is the flicka is only 18 feet long. The Great White, Bruce the Great White, is 25 feet long, three tons. He's longer than this vessel, so automatically they're outgunned, they're outmatched. They do not have the proper working area like the Orca provides to even give them a puncher's chance of defeating this shark. So what happens next is the lines are running everywhere. They can't maneuver because of the steering. Is no, there is no steering wheel, so they can't maneuver properly. The net is in the water. There's a chance of fouling the net on the propeller. So with the barrel line attached to the stern cleat, then the shark starts pulling and pulling hard, and it's wreaking havoc, the failed barrel. Angering the shark, what does it do? It starts turning, ramming the hull, trying to punch a hole in, of which it does. So the flicka starts taking on water. Next, what happens is the cleat fails. And when the cleat fails, lines start pulling tight, and wrapping, and since this shark is now doing its barrel rolls itself, it's now twisting and turning against the, against the ropes, it's going to create a mess. And what happened to Ben Gardner is that he gets caught, wrapped in the line. The line then drags him into the hull of the Flicka. There's an engine compartment there. It's a tight space right along the interior of the Flicka, and Ben Gardner gets not only crushed, by the weight of the rope that's wrapped around him, but also gets mangled. His neck is then broken. So he gets asphyxiated by the crushing weight of the shark. Think of that. That's the same weight that broke the jib arm on the orca. That's going to break the chest cavity and it's going to strangle Ben Gardner. That's why we have the eye bulge. And that's why it looks like he had died of asphyxiation, according to Detective Muggsy McGraw, because that's what the barrel line is doing to Ben Gardner. It pulls him tight against the hull. As it twists his body, his head goes the one way, he goes the other way, and then that's what breaks his neck. That's why his head is turned in an unnatural way, facing behind him, as we see in the discovery of the Ben Gardner body by Matt Hooper. With all the trauma that's happening, with all this trauma that's happening to the, the vessel, the windshields are shattering, the glass is shattering because of the, the strong vibrations. Uh, you obviously see the, the net is pulled everywhere. They were trying to pull the net in. 
because what that net was doing was, I think it was corralling the shark. It was actually creating an environment where the shark would go in and then they would close around it maybe. They had it maybe tied to their, and they would circle around this area and try to corral the shark. Also, if you look at the antenna is bent completely over. The VHF radio antenna is bent completely over. So that shows that this line went taut really fast, snapped around, and actually really put a, a lot of weight bending that antenna. And then eventually, if, if, and if Ben Gardner had it wrapped around, maybe wrapped around his arm, or it's had him, like maybe he took a couple of turns around his body where he's just trying to haul it in. And then things happen when it's, when you have a limited work environment like the Flicka offered, and you have a messy uh, deck as obviously, like you see, as they're headed out to sea, that rope is not coiled neatly, bad things are going to happen. So what I do believe is that the first mate sees that the flick is taking on water. Ben Gardner's been crushed to death by this uh, thrashing, raging 25-foot great white shark. So the first mate goes, I'm out of here. He bails to swim back to shore. And eventually the shark breaks free. The harpoon releases from its back. And then it goes and it finds the first mate swimming, and that's how he meets his demise. So we never, ever hear about the first mate dying. Brody can't even confirm that it's a death because we don't even know what happened to him because he's lost at sea. No records of that he's missing yet in the time frame of Jaws. So that's what I do believe happened there. All the clues, all the pieces come up to draw this conclusion of Ben Gardner dying by asphyxiation, crushed by the barrel line that he was able to attach to the great white shark. So now let's go into the conclusion. Everyone all says, well, why don't they bring up Ben Gardner's death later on with the mayor? So we have Hooper comes up from the water. This is a great white, Larry. A big one. And any shark expert in the world will tell you it's a killer. It's a man-eater. Look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island. And he is going to continue to feed here as long as there is food in the water. And there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents. That's the big glaring question. Like Stefan wrote in, he said, Hooper leaving out all this highly pertinent information to me goes against any logic and is, the, is a glaring mistake of the film. Well, what happens now is obviously that the medical examiner that you saw at the beginning of the movie... Dr. Nevin was quick to rule the death of Chrissy Watkins as a boating accident. Here, he's going to not, he's not going to pull any punches. He's going to rule this. He ruled Ben Gardner's death as death by asphyxiation, death by a compression death, a compression force that killed Ben Gardner. That is what the medical examiner is going to rule, not a shark attack. And he's going to explain it away as in a boating accident. This is probably a boating accident. There was, it's possible that they would have explained it away that there was a tow line mishap, that Ben Gardner just got into it something. He was towing something heavy and, it, and something happened and he got crushed in, in the weight of the line. That's why Brody can't say that the shark killed three people. Brody says this line. And there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents. Two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach. Three incidents, two people killed inside of a week. That's what Chief Brody says to the mayor. 
they only have that tooth as proof that there was a white shark involved with the death of Ben Gardner. Ben Gardner was not necessarily killed by the shark, according to the medical examiner. So they need that. They need to tell the mayor about the tooth. And that's why the mayor is so focused on that tooth, because without that tooth, Ben Gardner's death is ruled as a boating accident, death by asphyxiation. Now remember, now the next time they next time Chief references Ben Gardner, he only he can only reference Ben Gardner's boat that was chewed up. Right, look, Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of a boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. It was Ben Gardner's boat. It was all chewed up. I helped tow it in. You, sh- you should have seen him. Where? It was Ben Gardner's boat. It was all chewed up. I helped tow it in. You should have seen him. That's what he says. You should have seen him. He doesn't say that Ben Gardner was all chewed up. He just says that Ben Gardner was, cr- basically, Ben Gardner was crushed. You should have seen him. It was Ben Gardner's boat. It was all chewed up. I helped tow it in. You, sh- you should have seen him. And that's the problem here, is that all he can say is you should have seen him, as in, look at the mangled body that he was, the, the, the body that was mangled to death. There are no bite marks. There are no, it, there are no signs of any abrasions. So he can't say the shark killed him. That's why he says we had three incidents, two people killed inside of a week. The Ben Gardner death is ruled as an incident, but not necessarily killed by the shark. But that plays right into the mayor's hands of saying, we already caught the shark, and without that tooth... Where where is that tooth? Did you see it, Broden? No, I didn't see it. He he dropped it. I had an accident. And what did you say the name of this shark is? It's a Carcaridon carcarius. It's a great white. But you, you don't have the tooth. Look, we depend on the summer people here for our very lives. You are not going and to have a summer. Calls- so it's it's brilliant here. It's that it's that the mayor goes, okay, I'm going to that oh, you don't have the tooth, then I am going to go right back to my standard claim is we already killed that shark. That tiger shark was already there. And you don't have any proof, so therefore those beaches are going to stay open. But there is a lot more going on in this scene. If you want to know what's really going on here, go back and listen to Jaws Obsession episode 38. It's all psychological. That is very interesting because there's a lot more going on to this scene than we might know. But that is we already covered that in episode 38 of the Jaws Obsession. But for now, that will explain... The groundbreaking revelation of Ben Gardner's death, the cause of his death, but also why Brody and Hooper cannot use it as proof there is a shark off of Amity Island. They can only Brody can only describe it as, quote, an incident. What happened on that boat regarding a barrel hunting technique gone completely wrong that Ben Gardner thought that he could go out and actually just be Quint for a day, and he didn't realize that Quint's hunting technique has taken over 20 years to perfect. And if you read the book of Quint, you will actually see that Quint goes through all the mistakes and learns from his mistakes in order to perfect the barrel hunting technique that we see in Jaws off of Amity Island in the summer of 1974. That's not a that doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of experience with Quint, and that's what the that's kind of what Ben Gardner shows us in the movie Jaws is that greatness 
And being able to perfect a career cannot happen overnight. It takes a lot of trials and tribulations, of which Quint has gone through. The Ben Gardner death will then show us how special Quint was to this equation, exactly what the, how special the orca was and how that, that him being on that island at that place, at the right place at the right time, was there to protect and save many, many lives. With that, I would like to close this case on the mystery of the death of Ben Gardner with this episode 61 of the Jaws Obsession to prove once again that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. You can see it 150 times and it will never cease to amaze you. All the details and all the revelations that appear when you look deep inside the characters and deep inside that Jaws universe. Special, special movie. Thank you very much for listening. Show me the way to go home. I'm tired That was a doozy. I'd like to thank John Tedder and retired detective Muggsy McGraw for coming on board, as well as Noel Constantino of FMC Built for lending expertise and actually drawing conclusions to the cause of death for Ben Gardner. This episode would not be possible without you, the listener, out there in the Jaws Obsession and your input as well. Thank you very much. The movie Jaws is copyrighted property of Universal Studios. Any references and sampling from the movie Jaws in this episode is intended to fall within Section 107 of the Copyright Act. The copyrighted materials are fairly used for the purposes of criticism, comment, reporting, teaching, and research. The materials used here are protected by the Fair Use Guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act, all rights reserved to the copyright owners. Remember, you can reach me here at JawsOB2025 at gmail.com. You can visit JawsOB.com. Also, be on the lookout with Jaws Obsession UK with that July 1st scheduled meetup over in England where you there will be a raffle held to win one of two copies, signed copies of the Book of Quint. Go to Jaws Obsession UK over at Twitter and talk to Hayden to find all the details. Thank you very much for listening. Until next week, farewell and adieu and show me the way to go home.